In grade 12, I went to Suriname, South America on a mission trip for one month. And uh, actually the whole experience was a series of miracles from beginning to the end. But uh, I just want to tell one experience out of that whole thing. Uh, the principal had talked to each of the teachers to ensure, because I was missing a whole month of school, that I'd get the help that I needed to catch up when I got back. And uh, my physics teacher had somewhat been vocal through the year uh, about what he thought about Christians, and he was not at all happy that I was going on a mission trip. And uh, when I came back, the third day after being back in school, he said to me, he said, Don, come with me. And he led me into the library, and there he placed a stack of papers in front of me. And he said, I've prepared a test for you for all the work that you missed during the last month. Whatever you get on this test is going to be your mark for that month. And it was so unfair. I was to be tested on material that I hadn't been taught. And I'd been promised that I would have time and help to catch up. And I knew that if I just got up and I walked out of there and I went to the principal, that uh, he would ensure that I got the time and the help. But I also knew that I'd be in trouble with that teacher from that day forward, and uh, life would be miserable. So here's my question for you here this morning. How should the gospel impact that situation? Let's make it a tougher story. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah have been sent by God into the land of Canaan, and Abraham's a great man of faith, but he has some weaknesses. Sarah's an exceptionally beautiful woman, so much so that Abraham, as he's going into what he knows are ungodly nations, he's afraid that the kings of the land would desire her, that they'd kill him and take her. He's afraid for his life. So he devises a scheme. He tells Sarah, he says, as we come into the land of Canaan, what we're going to do is we're going to tell everyone that you're my sister. He wasn't telling a lie, she was his half-sister. But implicit is the lie that they aren't married. And uh, if a king wants you, I'll give you to the king. I'll save my life. I've often wondered how that made Sarah feel that uh, he was willing to sell her for his own safety. And all goes well until they go down to Egypt and Pharaoh sees her and he desires her. And when he inquires, he's told that she's unmarried, that she's Abraham's sister. And so he marries her. He brings her into his palace and he takes her to his bed. And for some time she lives with him and he's so happy with her that he keeps giving Abraham presents so much so that the Bible says that he made Abraham rich. Now, if you're Sarah caught in that situation, how would the gospel impact your situation? See, what Peter is trying to tell us in this passage we're coming to this morning is that the gospel always impacts our situation. So how do we, as strangers in this world, live out the gospel in the context of suffering? So up to now, Peter's laid down some basic gospel principles. We spend a fair bit of time on them. Now he's moving into some concrete examples to show us what gospel living looks like in the midst of suffering. And so this morning, he leads us into three 
examples. I could take a message on each of them, but we'd be forever and Peter then. So we're going to look at all three this morning. And in each of those, he's giving us principles. So these are not separate things. He's building. Each situation, he's building principles upon principles. And so all these principles apply to all situations. And so the first example is gospel living in the context of abuse of authority. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, starting verse 13, he says, Submit yourself to the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right. For it's by God's will that for it's God's will that by doing good you should silence ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for the evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. And so, Peter's first example is how does the gospel impact our response to those in authority, especially those who are abusive authorities? We have a lot of rights and freedoms that the people of the ancient world did not have. We don't understand what it was like to live under their authorities. And the, so the early Christians, uh, they especially lacked rights and freedoms, and many of them are suffering severe persecution. And so the first thing, in the context of abuse of authority, Peter says, submit to those who are in authority. No matter who's the authority, he says, submit to them. And he introduces a theme here that runs through the rest of his book. In the context of suffering, there's always some type of submission that needs to happen. And specifically within our spirits. And so the gospel impact on our lives will always involve some kind of submission. The word submission here means to yield, to surrender. Uh, in this context, it's submission to yield, to surrender to those in authority. Some of your translations will say to be subject to those in authority. Others will say respect them. Uh, respect kind of captures part of it, but it's more than just respect them. It's more than just your attitude, it's your actions. You yield to them. So what does submission to authorities mean here? And Peter gives us some clues. He says that God has a purpose for authority. We need authority to curtail evil and to promote good. Even evil leaders do that to an extent, even though they may be promoting evil in many contexts. But even they will bring some kind of law and order to society. So to submit to authority is to cooperate with them, to yield to them in their rightful use of authority. It's to encourage them in the rightful use of their authority, in the good usage of it. And he says to live in such a way that people have no excuse to talk about you in a negative way. So when they look at your life and how you relate to authority that's over you, they have no excuse to talk negatively about you. And so we're to focus on doing good to our authorities. You know, during COVID, we've seen a preacher yelling and calling authorities Nazis. Now, you can have legitimate issues, 
Yet you can disqualify yourself by how you treat those in authority. Your, your issue might be right, but if you are mistreating those who are in authority, you actually give them a reason and others a reason to speak against you. And that's what Peter's saying is that we, when we're under abuse of authority, we're never to give them an excuse to speak against us. Now with that particular preacher, I have to say he's being abused by authorities greatly. They've gone out of their way to abuse him. But what Peter is saying is, when we are abused, we are not to abuse back. When as a child, there was a word for the police that some people use, and that was the fuzz. Haven't heard that word since as a child. Derogatory term for police. I remember a man after he got stopped speeding, complaining about it, a dirty fuzz. That's how what he called them, a dirty fuzz. Peter is saying, we never talk like that. We're to give them the respect that's due their position, even if they're not worthy of respect. We're to give them obedience. Do that their position, even if not worthy of that obedience. Show respect, give no excuse for people to talk negatively about us. <clears throat> now Peter's not taking away your rights and your freedoms. He says, live as free people. We do have rights and freedoms in our society way more than they have. And Paul would stand on that. As he was about to be flogged one time, he says, ah, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights and I have freedoms. You cannot abuse me in that way. Another time when they had abused him, and they whipped him, and they put him in stocks, and then they're going to let him go the next day, he says, ah, you're not letting me go. Not until you as authorities come and apologize to me. Because I have rights and freedoms. And you have abused those. And so he stood up on his, stood on his rights and freedoms. And Peter's not asking that you deny yourself of your rights and freedoms. He says, I'm simply asking you, you don't use your rights and your freedoms as a cover-up for evil. I go on an outdoors forum sometimes. There's a lot of anger there about the liberal government and what they're trying to do in taking away guns. And as Canadians, we're given the freedom to protest, we're given the freedom to speak against our leaders, even to speak against our Prime Minister, but I cringe in how they do so. The language they use, the names they call him. You see, they're using their freedom as a cover-up freedom for, uh, for evil. Even our politicians do this. Even our prime minister. They call names. And Peter says, we're not to stoop to their level. We're to call to a better behavior. And so Peter says, remember that you're a servant of God. Everything you do, everything you say represents him. It reflects him. You either bring honor or shame to Jesus by how you respond to authorities. Now some of you, by personality, are more likely to speak out 
You're more likely to protest and resist the evil that's in our authorities. For some of you, this may even be the ministry that God is calling you to do. Submission does not mean that we do not resist evil. Submission means that we do it respectfully in a way that honors our Lord. And then he broadens this. He just says, show respect to everyone. The kind of submission that Peter's talking about always results in respect. You can judge your life simply by how you talk about other people. If you have the submissive spirit that God wants you to have, respect is the fruit of that. And if you want to judge someone's life, just go to their social media pages. And does what they say there promote respect or disrespect? And you have a window into that person's soul. And so this is the opposite of pride, which is self-centered. Submission in this context puts others first, even if they abuse you. It shows them respect and love. So thus Peter says, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. This is what the kind of this kind of submission looks like, even in the context of suffering. Authorities may hate us because we oppose their ungodly agenda. In fact, Jesus said they'll hate us simply because of him. But never let them hate us because of our bad attitudes. Instead, may they see our love and good works. So that's the first example of suffering. The next one, gospel living in the context of master and slave. And the first thing I want to say here, Peter is not promoting slavery. He's simply talking about what was in their culture. So this was the common thing. Many of the early Christians were slaves. They had no choice in it. And they were being abused. He's not promoting slavery. He's talking about how do we as Christians when we're caught in that respond. And across the world, slavery is live and well today. So if you thought the first example was tough, this one gets even harder. Now first I have to say there's some controversy about the translation of slave in this passage. Some of your translations will use the word slave, others will use the word servant, like in a hired servant, an employee. And uh, the reason the difference is because the original word can be translated either way. And so the translator has to decide. But the employee or slave really changed the context of what he's saying here. Because a slave has no rights or freedoms. A slave can do nothing or little about the abuse that he's receiving. Whereas if you're an employee, you may not be able to do anything about the abuse you're receiving, but at least you can walk away. So it's a big difference. So while the word can be translated either slave or servant, the word for master here, though, is the word for despot. Our absolute master, our Lord, is a negative term. And so I'm going to go with the context that it is meaning the word slave here. Because if someone that's underneath of a master has an absolute master, or Lord. And so Peter comes right back to that same principle, submission. 
Submit to your masters. Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. And so he, Peter now just goes through several different principles here. How do you respond when you're caught as a slave and you have no choice in the suffering you're receiving? So he says submission, whether the master is deserving or not, submit. Even if they're harsh and unreasonable and unjust, submit. Secondly, serve your master being conscious of God. If you're conscious of God while suffering, he says this is commendable. So God, I'm keeping you in view as I submit. How would you want me to do this? How would you want me to act? If you have that kind of attitude of submission, he says that's commendable. The third one, if you're suffering, make sure it's not because of your bad behavior. And he goes on, he says, God doesn't reward bad behavior, but he does take notice of good behavior. And so as we face suffering, God is watching how we respond. And it rewards good behavior. The fourth principle is do good to and for your master. If he abuses you for doing good, he says your actions are commendable to God. Doing good to your master doesn't mean that he's going to treat you well. Hopefully he does, but he may not. But just still, faithfully, keep doing good. That's commendable. I often wonder if Peter had Jesus' words in mind in Luke chapter 6. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for them, those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you in one cheek, turn to him the other also. And on he goes. When we're being abused, the response always to be back is good. And that takes a submissive spirit to do that. You want to find out if someone's, if you've got a submissive spirit? Just have someone abuse you. And your reaction reveals a lot. The fifth thing he says under this situation is follow example of Christ. Christ suffered and he committed no sin. Not even with his mouth. He was insulted, yet he did not retaliate. He suffered and yet he did not threaten them. Instead, Christ entrusted himself to God, depending on God to judge the situation, and God will judge the situation. I want to go back to that story, that physics teacher. That day, as he made me sit down, he plunked that test in front of me, and I just, my first thoughts are how unfair this is. And I knew why he was doing it, because I was a Christian, and I had gone on a mission trip. And my first thought was, I can go to the principal, and I know he will follow through, and he'll make this right. But I also knew it would just portray that teacher against me. My second thought was to entrust myself to God, and I sat there, and I prayed, and I told God how unfair this is. And why I didn't want to go to the principal. And I asked God to help me, and I began to write that test. And these were mostly mathematical equations that I had not been taught. I had no clue how to do them. But as I would stare at a question, after having prayed, slowly an answer would come. And I would write that answer down on the paper. It went that way for the entire test. 
I went and handed it in to him, and the next day, as he walked by my test, uh, by my desk, he had that sheaf of papers in his hands, and he just <laughs> right like that down on my desk, and he was angry. I had a good mark. I was curious, so I went and averaged my marks up till then, and that average was exactly what I got on the test. God had given that to me as though I had not missed that work, what I would have been if I'd been there. I entrusted myself to God. And Peter is saying that when you're under those situations of, of abuse, rather than retaliating, be like Christ. And entrust yourself to God. The next thing he says is to remember your salvation. Remember that God took your judgment so that you could die to sin and you could live for righteousness. It's by his wounds you've been healed. You were going astray, but you've returned to the, uh, uh, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's saying, keep the gospel always in front of you. Because when you keep the gospel in front of you, it's the gospel that keeps you on track in the midst of unjust suffering. Let's go to his third example. Gospel living in the context of marital suffering. First Peter 3. You know, I've struggled with this passage when I was young. Because the first thing it starts off and it says, wives submit. And so many people have just taken this passage out of its context, used it alone, and they've taught it as for marital guidelines. And I struggled with that because he uses Sarah as the example. Sarah, who has a husband, and says, I want you to go to the bed of another man. And she's supposed to submit. And be happy about it. But see, what they're doing is they're ripping the passage out of context. And we need to put it in context if we're going to understand this passage. But first of all, do you catch the theme again? In each context of suffering, Peter asks for a submission of some kind. So let's address the context. So authority, governments, he's talking about abusive authority. You have little choice, little freedoms. Master, slave, you have no choice, no freedoms. Husband and wife, it's not like today. In their day, it was no choice often little freedom. You see, in their culture, women had little or no rights or freedoms. Women were considered chattel. They were the property of their husbands to do with as they wished. Hopefully they were in a better situation than a slave, but if they were not, the husbands could treat them like a slave, and they had no choice in it. And so Peter's, he addresses here the context of a wife married to an unsaved man. And why does he do that? I believe it's because a Christian man should have been taught to treat his wife with love and respect, to sacrificially serve her in the same way Christ serves the church, with the same depth of love. But an unsaved man has never been taught that. 
And so the context here is that an unsaved man is going to be brought up, being taught that he is the Lord and master of his house, and that his wife is his property to do as he wishes. That's a cultural reality of the day. And that was a huge struggle for the women, because so many of them suffered greatly underneath of this. And so Peter uses the example of Sarah, who called Abraham, he says, her Lord, her master. Now Sarah didn't have it easy. She's married to a wealthy, powerful man who mostly lives a godly life. She has certain freedoms. We later see her speaking up to Abraham. He even gives in to her in a couple situations where he shouldn't have given in to her. But Abraham had that flaw. As I said earlier, he was a great man of faith, but he struggled with that fear for his life. He struggled with trusting God to protect his life. And so Sarah saw exceptionally beautiful. He fears that the rulers of the land are going to come and kill him and take her. Maybe he really reasoned, well, if they're going to take her anyways, at least this will save my life. So twice he sends her into the home of another man. The first time she lives with that man for some time. Second time God stops it before they actually start living together. Now Sarah, did she speak out? Did she oppose it? Did she willingly go along with it? We're not told her part of the story. But in the end, Sarah had no rights and no freedoms. If Abraham said it was going to happen, it was going to happen. We're talking an abusive situation here. And so what did Sarah and other godly women do when faced in the context of suffering in marriage? She couldn't change her situation. She can only change what's going on inside. She couldn't change the fact that she was sent off to Pharaoh's household. This is what she did. She focused on the purity and reverence of her life. She was exceptionally beautiful, but she recognized that while outward beauty is fine, that inward beauty of gentle and quiet spirit is unfading, and it's of great worth in God's sight. In the context of an abusive marriage, Sarah saw that there was something more valuable than anything else. And that was what was going on inside of her. And she responded to God in that. So how does the gospel impact women in the context of suffering? That's what Peter's talking about. They follow the godly example of Sarah. They do what is right and they do not give in to fear. Think of the amount of fear that Sarah must have had. But she didn't give in to the fear. She conquered her fear in that abusive situation by focusing on her spirit. And they recognize that the best way to impact the person who's causing them the suffering is through a gentle and quiet spirit, a beautiful spirit. And that's where they put their focus. Today we're in a different context. Women of old had no or little rights, they were property. Today, you have rights, you have freedoms. But in spite of that, today women still suffer. 
And Peter's not saying don't use your rights and freedoms. He's not saying that you have to stay necessarily in that situation of abuse. In fact, he says earlier, when you have a right, use it, just use it in the right way. He's addressing a specific situation of his day, women who were married to pagan men who abused them and they had no options. There was no way out. And he says to them, focus on your inner beauty. Then he turns around to the husbands. He says, husbands in the same way. And so it's the same context, this suffering. Everything that Peter said to the women also applies to the men, he's saying. And yes, there are wives who do abuse their husbands. Women are not powerless in handing out abuse. And so in the same way, just what he said to women, if you are a man and you have an abusive wife, the same things apply. Again, there's a submission that has to happen. And the temptation with us as men is because we're stronger physically. And because there's an innate authority that's given to men, we can use that to retaliate against the abuse. And try to overpower. And in that case, we become abusive back. And so there needs to be a submission that happens that results in right actions on your part as a man. And so we too need to focus on the purity and reverence of our lives. We too need to do what is right and not give in to fear. But he doesn't leave it there. He adds some things for us as men. Remember that he's building in each of these examples. So all these things apply to everyone. He says, men, be considerate. Live in an understanding way with her. Treat her with respect, recognizing in some way she's weaker. It's easy for you to dominate her through your power. Do not use your power to abuse her back because she's vulnerable to your strength. Rather, he says, treat her with respect as a full and equal heir of the gracious gift of eternal life. She is your full equal and treat her as such. And then he gives a warning to the man. He says, if you don't do this, it'll hinder your prayer life. Do you want God to be listening to you as men? Treat your wives right. Do you want God to close heaven to you? Abuse your wife. God does not take abuse of men lightly. And then the last example, and we just don't have time to really dive into it, but he says, he's talking about gospel living in the context of any relationship. He says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. I like uh, Ephesians 4, 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds the other up. And so our response really comes down in abuse of living. It's just normal Christian living. Abuse should just bring out normal Christian living. These are all things that we should all do, whether you're in a situation of abuse or not. So I just want to review uh, these principles for you. I've combined them. They're for all of us at all times. This is the kind of people that we should be in the face of suffering, but it's the kind of people that we should be at all times. 
And so always there's submission. The gospel will bring us to some kind of submission. A submission that leads to humility in your life. That leads to what's doing right. In every situation there's a submission involved. The gospel will lead us to be people of respect. Even if the person does not deserve our respect. We're still people of respect. The gospel leads us to a willingness to serve those who are abusing us. Being conscious of God while doing that. The gospel leads us to a willingness to suffer for doing good for the Lord's sake. The gospel leads us to following Christ's example where there's no sin. We don't respond in simple ways. We don't retaliate. We don't threaten. But instead we entrust ourselves to God. The gospel leads us to putting, keeping the gospel in front of us always to keep us on track. The gospel leads us to focusing on our attitude, the purity and reverence of our lives. Focusing on that inner and gentle and quiet spirit. The gospel does not lead us to giving into fear, but instead leads us to doing what is right. The gospel leads us to being considerate, respectful, living in harmony, sympathy, loving others, being compassionate, being humble, and repaying evil with blessing. So why should we do these things? Because when you're in the midst of suffering, your whole being is crying out to do the opposite. Why should we be doing these things? 1 Peter 3.9, he says, because this is to what you're called. This is normal Christian living. You're called to be like this. So that you may inherit a blessing for whoever would love good life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do good. Why should you do this? Not only because it's the right thing to do, but because there's a blessing in it. God blesses those who do this. And he pays attention to their prayers. If we do it. Now maybe you've been sitting there thinking, well, these things are tough, they're overwhelming, they're impossible. But that's what the gospel does. It impacts everything. And so Peter takes us through some of the toughest things that we can experience in life. Being abused by authorities. For them it was being abused by authorities even to the taking of their lives. Suffering that's caused by a slave master. Or suffering that's caused in a marital, marital relationship. Or in any relationship. The gospel changes how we live in those situations. The gospel impacts how we suffer. We all suffer. That's a given. But the question is, how do we respond? The old saying is that under suffering, you either become bitter or you become better. And that's your choice. And Peter's calling us to become better. Let's pray. Father, these are just three examples, and Peter's trying to encompass all suffering in life. He's just taking some of the tough ones and illustrating how it works. And I pray that your spirit would do your work in our hearts as we face these things. Because we all know it's tough. Our old nature cries out to retaliate and to fight back. And 
but our new nature says yes to you. And I pray that rather than getting bitter, we would just simply get better. I pray this in Jesus' name.